then, the theme for the week, lessons from an imperfect ecclesia, counterfeit gods, money, sports, and promiscuity. It's my privilege now to call upon our friend and brother, Steve Davis. Thank you very much, Brother Allen. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a, uh, it's a real pleasure for Sandy and I to be with you this week. We've been to the Niagara Bible School once before. We had a wonderful time, and of course our dear friends Jim and Katie tell us every year how wonderful Niagara is. As you may know, Sandy and I are members of the Christadelphian Ecclesia at Boston. And Boston is, is the ecclesia that I have really grown up in. I've been a member of the congregation there since I was born. When I was four years old, the Boston Ecclesia moved from, uh, from, from downtown Boston to a suburb in Stoughton. And so sometimes you hear of our meeting being referred to as the Stoughton Ecclesia, and other times you'll hear it referred to as the Boston Ecclesia. But I can tell you that having spent my entire life in that one meeting, has been a wonderful source of encouragement and comfort for me. The brothers and sisters there are my friends, and they have helped me in, in times when my, my faith has been rocked by different life experiences. The brothers and sisters there encourage me, and they also give me an opportunity to serve and in, to, to encourage others. And while I say that, I should also say that there have been times in my 30 plus years as a member, baptized member of that meeting, when, quite frankly, I've been disillusioned. When I've looked and thought, you know, I wish our Bible class was more vibrant. Or when I thought, I wish the brothers and sisters saw eye to eye on this particular issue more. Or I wish, we, I wish we were more like that ecclesia that has so many more members or the more active Sunday school. And I guess when we get right down to it, we can always find the grass greener someplace else, can't we? My mom used to say, you know, the grass is only greener above the septic tank. And the, you know, what I want to do this, this week, God willing, is talk to you about lessons from an imperfect ecclesia. And we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, but we're going to focus on what he had to say about that ecclesia there. And the scriptures give us a great deal of information. In fact, there's more information about the Corinthian ecclesia than any other ecclesia in the New Testament. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is only but a few paragraphs short of his longest letter, the letter to the Romans. And when you combine 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and you add the details that we have from the Acts, we quickly realize that there's more information about Corinth than there is about any other first century church. And when we look at the brothers and sisters there, we're going to see that they had problems. And they had difficulties. And they had struggles. 
And I think it's really helpful for me, and I mentioned it to the teens in the last class, that it's important that we don't look at our own families or our own ecclesias or our community and get discouraged because there are problems. The reality is every ecclesia from the first of the ecclesias to the last of the ecclesias have always had and will continue to have difficulties. And that shouldn't surprise us. And so what we need to focus on is not the fact that there are problems, but how do we handle those problems? And I think that Paul's counsel to his friends in Corinth will give us some great, great practical lessons. What I'd like to do in this first class is focus on three things. I'd like for us to have an idea about the place where Paul preached. The three things that we're going to look at are the counterfeit gods that they seem to worship there. We're going to see how they worshiped the god of money how they worship the god of sport, and they worship the god of immorality. Immorality in the name of religion. So when we see how the Corinthians seem to put so much time and attention and focus on these three counterfeit gods, we'll then be able to draw parallels to our own lives in this century and in our areas where we live. Because the love of money was a problem in Corinth, and clearly it's a problem today. The undue amount of attention to sport and to sports stars was not unusual in Corinth, nor is it unusual today. And the rampant immorality that the brothers and sisters in Corinth were faced with each and every day is really no different than the immorality that we see around us. My grandfather used to say to me, Steve, you face more temptation on the way to school than I used to face when I was a teenager on a Friday night out looking for it. And that's the point. Today we find that our young people and even ourselves are inundated with the temptation to immoral things through access to the internet, for example. And so when we look at this ecclesia, this formative meeting, we're going to see that despite the fact that so many hundreds of years have gone by, there really are similarities and that the lessons that Paul taught to them are clearly applicable to us. So we're going to see that Corinth was set up in the center of the Mediterranean world. It was the center of commerce. It was the center of sport. And in many ways, as we said, it was the center of immorality. Here is a, a picture that you will uh, certainly recognize. And when I say that Corinth was in the center of the Mediterranean world, I really wasn't kidding. What we have here, just to you know, hit the landmark, we obviously are you know, familiar with, with Judea and, and Jerusalem here and Egypt to the south. We 
have Syria, we have the Asian area. Here is Greece, which was known at the time as Achaia, with a capital right there in the middle. Corinth was located just to the south of Athens. When we go to the west, we find Italy and Rome. And so, when we think about how the city was situated and how it became the center of finance in the Mediterranean world, we'll soon realize that the reason was because of its geographic location. So here's what I mean. I guess first, we'll, when we think of the history of the city, it's important to recognize or it's important to realize that there were really two cities of Corinth. There was old Corinth and there was new Corinth. Old Corinth was established about 1,000 B.C., and it quickly became a very popular and a populous place. It probably reached its height of power about 200, maybe 300 B.C. They say that it was five times bigger than the capital city of Corinth. And at that time, the Roman Empire gave the the Greek city-states autonomy. They gave them autonomy to rule and defend themselves for a variety of reasons. One of the things that the Greek city-states struggled with, and Corinth struggled with in particular, was the problem of piracy on the open waters. And so Rome recognized that they didn't want to have to deal with this problem, so they turned the power, they gave the, uh, they gave Corinth and many other Greek city-states, the autonomy and the authority to rule and defend themselves. And soon, leagues began to form. The Achaean League was one such league. Corinth was its capital member. And this presented a challenge or a concern for the Romans. In about 146 B.C., the Romans came in having felt threatened by the Achaean League and they completely destroyed the old city of Corinth. They leveled it to the ground. They destroyed the infrastructure. They killed all the men of the city. The women and the children were sold into slavery. And for a period of about a hundred years, the city of Corinth much like the ancient city of Jerusalem after its siege, laid dormant. The only people that lived there were squatters that came and, and happened upon the place. But Julius Caesar realized that he was wasting a terrific opportunity because of the, uh, because of the city's location. And as a result, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth. And this is what we refer to as New, New Corinth. And it was at this city, and it was to this place, that the Apostle Paul arrived and began to preach the gospel. So when Paul arrived, the city was really only about 100 years old. Historians tell us that the city soon exploded in popularity. The location was such that it was perfect, absolutely ideal for trade. We're going to see in a moment that this country of Greece was divided in two, 
To the north, there was the northern Greece area, and to the south, there was this Peloponnesus, this, this peninsula. And the only way to get from the north to the south and the south to the north was over this Ismithian land bridge. And that's where Corinth was located. And so they controlled the trade routes from north to south. They also controlled the maritime routes, and we'll speak of that in a minute. But these factors led to an unbridled amount of wealth and entrepreneurial opportunity for individuals that soon flocked to the city that was beginning to be built again. Olive oil, pottery, wine, all of these major exports seemed to flow through the city. There was a profitable marketplace, the Agora, that was established there. And it was here that individuals would soon come with their, with their desires to earn wealth, with their desires to be free from the area where they used to live, to start afresh. And the population, some say, grew from 90,000 people when Julius Caesar first sent the slaves there to 750,000 by the time Paul was there at its height. That's about the size of the city of Hamilton or Quebec City. It's a huge place. It was mostly inhabited by slaves initially and soon the freedmen that flocked to the city because of its opportunities, financial opportunities. So here's that map that I was alluding to. And we see Greece in the north here and, and this, Ismithian corn, uh, this Ismithian land bridge. And this Peloponnesus area, this circular, this circular area there, was the location of some very famous cities. It was where Olympus was located. And so, in order to go from Olympus in the south to Athens in the north, it was necessary to cross the land bridge. And the entrepreneurial spirit of, spirit of many of those that came would, would exact tolls, and they would charge, and they would levy taxes, and they would do all these things in order to garner more and more wealth. But in addition to controlling the north-south region, they also had the unique opportunity to control the maritime trade from east to west. What you see on the slide here is a NASA satellite photograph. And today, there is something unique to the city that did not exist in the time of Paul. And if you had the ability to zoom in on this satellite map even further, you would notice that right at the narrowest point of this land bridge, there is now a canal that connects the Aegean Sea to the Corinthian Harbor in the west. This was a critically important component to the, to, to the wealth that occurred in that city. Because for traders that wanted to go from Egypt in the south to Rome in the northwest, or Asia in the east to Rome in the west, they had one of two choices. Firstly, they could sail south across the open waters of the Mediterranean. The boats that they had in those days weren't the boats that we have today. And because of that, it was an extremely dangerous proposition. 
the winds to the south of the Peloponnesus around, around this area of, well, I guess we'll go here. Around this area here, this is Cape May, Cape Malay. And even today, sailors report that those waters are among the most dangerous to navigate in all of seafaring. Now, why is that? And the reason for that has to do with the trade winds. Now, we live, Sandy and I and Jim and Katie, we live in New England. And one of the things that we experience every winter are the nor'easters, where the wind comes ripping down from the northeast and it buffets our coastlines and it creates a great deal of problems for us. And it was the same in the Mediterranean. The wind would come ripping down from the northeast. Now imagine what it would be like for these strong northeasterly winds to come down and then to be funneled between the island of Crete and the Peloponnesus area here. So all of these winds would come down and it would, the, the land masses would create this, this area where the wind was just extremely, extremely strong. Homer wrote in the Odyssey about Odysseus. And when Odysseus was traveling in this area, he was caught in one of those gale force winds. And he writes that he was lost for a period of Ten years. So he was caught in those very winds and he was gone. But not only do we read about those winds when we come to things like, like Homer, but we read about it in the scriptures as well, don't we, brothers and sisters? Turn with me to Acts chapter 27. And here we'll read about, about the shipwreck of Paul. And it was at this point in time as Paul is nearing the end of his life that he's a prisoner and he appeals to Caesar. And in Acts chapter 27, we'll see what happened as they sailed from Caesarea with the intention of going to Rome. So Acts chapter 27, and we'll jump in at the fifth verse. Paul says, When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra, in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete. And so we can see illustrated here on the map the travels of the apostle as he intended to go from Caesarea here in the south to Rome. And so they came up to Myra, they found the Alexandrian ship, they got on that ship, and then they had the problems with the wind. And the sailors, the experienced sailors of the day said, I know, we'll sail to the south of Crete and then the island will protect us and block the wind from buffeting our boat. And that was the intention. We look now at the ninth verse. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned the men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo. 
to our own lives also. Verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, verse 14, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island, and the ship was caught in the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. Verse 27, on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed we were approaching land. Brothers and sisters, sailing north of Crete and south of Cape Malaya was extremely difficult. And that presented a tremendous financial opportunity for the individuals that lived on that Ismithian area in Corinth. Consequently, they built what is referred to today as the world's very first railroad. It was called the dialkos, a Greek word that means to haul across. And so sailors that were coming from Asia in the east would bring their boats into that harbor and the slaves would actually lift up that small boat and they would carry it or haul it across the dial cross to the opposite harbor where they could then sail uninhabited, uninhibited by the winds and the, the struggles of going south around Cape Malaya. There were proverbs in, in Greek culture that said a sailor who was going south around the Cape ought to make his will. And they, they recognized that. And clearly, they used this to a great advantage. The shortcut was designed to spare ships from coping with the windswept and dangerous route around Cape Malay. They carried the small boats. They offloaded the larger boats and put them on carts. And these photographs were taken, as you can see, in 1960. And those ruts are still in the ground today. And you can see the evidence of this infrastructure that allowed Corinth to become the center of finance. It became an area where individuals would, would go to experience untold wealth from their perspective. Archaeologists today can find the remnants of the Agora, which is where all of the trade goods were sold. So when they offloaded these ships, some of them would end up in the Agora. This was the marketplace. It was the center of social activity. It was the place where individuals would come from all around the world to shop and to communicate and to learn about different cultures. It was here, likely, that the Apostle Paul and his friends Aquila and Priscilla would have established their tent-making shop. It was here that people from all around the world would come and they could learn the gospel. And then they could leave that place because they were transient travelers and the gospel would spread. It was a tremendously effective way to share the truth of the scriptures. And so the Agora 
There are remnants of the Agora today, and if you go to Corinth, you can visit them. The second thing that we see when we, when we consider ancient Corinth, or new Corinth as, as we refer to it, is that they had an incredible interest in sports. Now, we're all familiar, certainly, with the Olympic Games, but in Greek culture, there were four festivals, one of which was the Olympic Games, and second to the Olympic Games, and some would say even uh, on par with the Olympic Games, were the Ismithians. They were similar, but in addition to the athletic competition that we know today as the Olympic Games, the Ismithian Games included such things as theater competitions, drama, music. And it was not limited only to male athletes, but it was open to families where husbands and wives and their children could participate and compete these things included such activities as horse racing, horse racing, chariot races, sailing regattas. You can imagine how popular it might have been. And as a result, when the Ismithian Games were held every two years, they instituted a truce. It was so important to the area that if wars were being fought, individuals were guaranteed safe passage to Corinth. The historians tell us that these games were held every two years and had been going on for 500 years when the Apostle Paul arrived. Now, during that time before Caesar reestablished the city, the Ismithian games had no home. And as a result, they were moved to a different location. But soon thereafter, after the city was reestablished, the Ismithian games came back to and they were held, as we said, every two years, typically in the spring. One of the things that we find in our studies of 1 Corinthians is that we are able to very precisely, within just a few years, date when the Apostle Paul was there because he identifies who the Roman proconsul was at the time. And so we can go and match who the, na the name of the Roman proconsul with the historical records and determine that Paul was likely in Corinth around the time of 50 AD. And if we then look at when the Ismithian games were held, they were held in 49 AD, 51 AD, 53 AD, 55 AD. And what that means is that it is an almost certainty that the Apostle Paul was here in Corinth when these popular games were held. And of course, Paul then uses the sports metaphor in his description of our walk in truth. The Apostle Paul speaks to those in Corinth about living a life in the truth, walking in the gospel, and he uses that analogy because it's something they, that resonated with them. It's something that they could understand and comprehend, and it, there was a connection there. And so what you see on the screen here, of course, is Paul's writing of that sports metaphor. These are some selected verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What I'd like to do is, is mention a few of the things that we see here. Paul says, do you not know that in a race... 
all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. The word for race there is a very unique word. It's a word that is, I think it's the Greek word stadia, and it has a connotation to a distance. And so for the readers of Paul's letter, when he wrote in the origin in their language, they would have read, for example, do you not know that in the 100-meter dash, all the runners run? It had that sort of connection. It was related to a particular event that was held at the Smithian Games. Archaeologists today have gone to the city and they have discovered many of the locations where these games were held. One of the things they've discovered is the area where the races were held. And lo and behold, they tell us that the distance of the race course that they found is the same distance as the word race in Paul's letter. Fascinating. So Paul uses this analogy, and then he says, that's what the runners do in the games. But brothers and sisters, my friends, we need to run in such a way to get the prize. He says everyone that competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. Now Jim and I are, uh, are, are fans of the Boston Marathon near us. And the Boston Marathon has been held for over 100 years. And until just recently, the winner of the Boston Marathon received no other accolades other than the pat on the back, a hearty congratulations, and a laurel wreath. There was no prize money. There were no keys to a car. It was just the accolades. It was the, the laurel wreath. And so when Paul speaks about the crown that will not last, he's speaking not about the laurel wreath that you might find at the, at the Boston Marathon or that you might see in the Olympic Games. The Smithian Games had a very unique wreath. The wreath that they used was actually, believe it or not, made out of celery. And so you think to yourself, why would I go into strict training to get a, a, a celery leaf, wreath placed on my head? And Paul then draws the analogy and he says, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Our brother Mick, I see, is speaking to the young people about spiritual athletics. And when we think about that in our, in our own context, brothers and sisters, we are spiritual athletes. We do go into strict training. And the difference is, the prize that we receive is eternal. And it makes the training, the difficult training, so much more worthwhile when we recognize that. And so Paul draws on that analogy. In the previous slide, we looked at, uh, at this picture here, the famous Greek statue. It shows a sport that I think is called Planktathon or something like that. And this sport had two rules. There was no biting and no eye gouging. And that was it. And these fighters would fight in such a brutal manner. And today we see these sports re-emerging on our scene today. And these are the sorts of things that were held. And Paul understood that these were popular in those days. And so when he preached the gospel, and so when he encouraged his brothers and sisters there, 
he used that same sports analogy. And he says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. The, Canadian, the, 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 the country of Canada hosted the Winter Olympics this past winter. Uh, our friend and sister Abby Bull was a participant in the opening ceremonies. And one of the things that takes place in the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games is the athlete's pledge or the athlete's oath. And it's not dissimilar to an oath that was required of all of the competitors in the Asmithian Games. They took an oath, we're told, to compete honestly, to obey the rules of the games, to treat the other competitors fairly under penalty of disqualification. And this was a big thing in the Asmithian Games. And again, Paul picks up on that when he speaks of not being disqualified from the prize. So Corinth, as we've seen, has been the center of finance, we see it as having had this tremendous center of sport. And what we'll see now is that it was also a center of immorality. Imagine the sailor who has been in a tiny boat for weeks, sailing across the Mediterranean with his cargo loaded full of goods to go from east to west. And he arrives in Corinth with his sea legs. And he discovers nothing short of an ancient day, Las Vegas. That's what Corinth was like. There were two temples. Uh, there, there are two temples that are, that are still visible today. Historians tell us that were, there were upwards of 30 temples to idolatrous gods in the city. The two that are easily recognizable today are the Temple of Aphrodite and the Temple of Apollo. Both of these are seen in this picture on the left. The Temple of Aphrodite was, was located at the very top of this mountain that was called the Acrocorinth. And it also was a reason for the geographic success or the, the commercial success of the city because it did two things. This Acrocorinth provided a natural defense mechanism. They were able to defend the city. There are the walls of a citadel still visible on that mountain today. In addition to the defense feature that the mountain provided, it also provided springs that gave fresh water to the inhabitants of the city. Something that today we probably take for granted, but, for something, but something that was critically important to a growing community. And so there was fresh water there. In terms of the, the religion of the day, there was a worship of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of love, of beauty, of sex, the goddess of fertility. 
And as we mentioned, at the top of this Acrocorinth, this 2,000-foot mountain, there was the temple of Aphrodite. And in old Corinth, this was before Paul came, it's said that there were about a thousand cult prostitutes that lived on that mountaintop. And so when I asked you to imagine the sailor who would come into port and would walk around with his eyes wide open as he sees the, the goods from across the world in the Agora, now imagine him hearing the sounds tinkling cymbals and banging gongs. Because these cult prostitutes would come down off the mountain and they would tinkle these cymbals and they would bang these gongs to alert the sailors of their presence. Plato referred to these women as Corinthia Chore, a word that means Corinthian girl. And in Greek culture, that word was sort of moved along in much of the Greek historical writings as being synonymous with prostitution, Corinthian girls. And so these cult prostitutes would come down into the Agora, typically at dusk. They would ring their bells. They would sound their gongs. And these weary travelers would travel to the top of the mountain where they would experience the immorality of prostitution in the name of religion, but in the form of cheap entertainment, if you will. Corinthian immorality was a huge issue. So imagine the Apostle Paul now, when he writes to the brothers and sisters and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Have you ever been there, brothers and sisters? When Brother Ron spoke to us about his preaching activities, I think to myself, where would I be in the middle of a city like Bangladesh? I would be fearful. And when we read your account, Brother Ron, we draw strength from the example that you provide us. When we read about the Apostle Paul admitting that he went with fear and trembling, brothers and sisters, I think there is a terrific lesson there for us. How many times as a young parent, Sandy, did we come to a Bible school and in the back of our minds worry that, oh boy, I hope our children match up to the children of the other righteous brothers and sisters at this Bible school. How many times do we come to meeting and think, oh boy, I hope that my brothers and sisters don't discover that I've fallen down this week, that I've, I'm struggling with this particular issue or this particular sin. And the danger, brothers and sisters, is that we build up these facades that we appear at Bible schools and we appear at our ecclesias like we are these perfectly righteous individuals when the reality is it's not always true. And if we can heed the advice of the Scriptures and confess our faults to one another as the Apostle Paul did when he said, I came to you in weakness and in trembling, we can learn from that. We can, we can admit our faults, our struggles to others. 
And they might be able to say, Brother Steve, I too struggled in situations similar. Let me help you. Here's an issue that I struggled with, and here's how I overcame it, thanks to God's loving mercy, his merciful kindness. And brothers and sisters, it's so important for us to do those same sorts of things, to provide hope and encouragement to one another, to allow others to recognize that our family's not perfect, my meeting isn't perfect, it's okay. Because if we give that false facade, the danger is that our young people will say, I can never measure up to that. I don't deserve to be baptized. That's what the young people sometimes say. And yet the reality is that none of us are worthy. And if we can share that experience with them and let them know that neither are we and that we struggle, then perhaps they'll be able to connect the way the Apostle Paul is able to connect with the brothers and sisters in Corinth. In Paul's day, Aphrodite's temple was in ruins, but its legacy lived on. Brothers and sisters, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This, of course, is that very well-known chapter about love. But at the beginning of this chapter, Paul is, is contrasting the spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit with something that's better. And so I want to carefully read the first three verses. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, brothers and sisters, we might not initially connect and recognize the illusion that Paul is drawing here to the temple of Aphrodite and those Corinthian girls that would come off the mountain, but certainly the brothers and sisters to whom he wrote would have recognized that. And so Paul is telling us that we need to develop not a superficial love like those that came down from the mountains were espousing, we need to develop heartfelt, meaningful, deep, true love. Christ-like love for one another. Not the love that's represented by tinkling cymbals and the sounding gongs of the Corinthian girls. Paul says in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. Can you imagine having the faith to move mountains? And Paul says, but if you have not love, you're nothing. This is the importance of the subject. This is the, the critical reason why we need to develop that love for one another. Verse 3. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus says, sell all that you have. And the rich man went away sad. And here, the apostle says, if 
I sell all that I have and give to the poor, but I don't have love. I've gained nothing. And so this speaks to our motivation. Our motivation has to be driven by love for one another in everything that we do. We need to love. So how do we, how do we understand whether we're loving well or not? How do we understand whether the love that we seem to purport is just a facade or whether it is real and deep and meaningful? And I'd suggest to you this, this trick, if you will. In verse 4, it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. I would suggest that you read that to yourself. But every time you see the word love, replace it with your name. And ask yourself whether that is true in your case. Steve is patient. There are times, brothers and sisters, when I'm not. Steve is kind. Yes, there are times when I'm kind. There are times when I'm not. But isn't this a wonderful benchmark for us to hold ourselves accountable and to ask what is our motivation in dealing with difficulties and struggles and tensions within our families or within our ecclesias and within our worldwide community? What is my motivation? Is it being driven by true and deep and meaningful love? Love never fails. It says in verse 8. Verse 13, and now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So what we've done today, brothers and sisters, is we have focused on the problems that we all experience in our lives. And I've tried to emphasize the fact that we ought not be disillusioned things, because ecclesias from the very beginning till now have experienced difficulty. Families from the very beginning till now have experienced difficulty. And it's my hope this week that we can explore that. What we've done today is we've looked at the history of the city of Corinth, and we've tried to understand how it was the center of the, of the Mediterranean world from the standpoint of finance, from the standpoint of sports, even from the standpoint of immorality. And we've done that so that we can see that there are comparative examples for us to draw in our own lives. And when we think about these things, brothers and sisters, let us be motivated by love. Tomorrow, God willing, we're going to look at the birth of an ecclesia. And we're going to go into Acts and we're going to see how Paul came to preach to those that lived in this environment. We'll see what was going on in his mind. We'll understand and explore the fears that he had. And we'll see how those fears were helped. And so thank you for your attention. And I look forward to uh, speaking to you tomorrow.